passage, if you haven't figured out yet by the bold subtitle font or the prayer that I just prayed, this passage tells the story of Saul's conversion. It's actually one of three accounts of his conversion story in the book of Acts, which tells us that it must be of some significance. We'll see it again later in his testimony, Paul's testimony before a Jewish mob in chapter 22. And we'll see it a third time in his testimony before King Agrippa in chapter 26. It's a significant part of God's story of redemption in the book of Acts because Paul, as he would come to be known, would go on to become this evangelistic pioneer planting churches all over the Mediterranean landscape. Incredible story. He would also go on to author more New Testament books of the Bible than any other writer, emphasizing doctrines central to the Christian faith like union with Christ and justification by faith alone, which is pretty incredible. Incredible when you read the very first words of chapter 9. Look at verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. If you were around a few weeks ago, we were introduced to Saul back in chapter 7, not only witnessing Stephen's execution, but approving of it. He was on site, a violent hater of all things Christianity, happily disrupting family dinners and devotionals. Imagine that, you're sitting at the dinner table, and all of a sudden Saul and his entourage shows up and rips you from the dinner table to take you to the Jerusalem prison. That's what was happening in this moment. To, to use the language of Acts chapter 8, verse 3, Saul was ravaging the church. Here, as we get to chapter 9, he decides to up the ante to take his show on the road. A six-day journey by foot, which is incredible commitment to the destruction of the Christian community, is it not? Imagine traveling by foot six days to attempt to destroy something that, that you're in hostile opposition to. Saul decides that he's going to counteract the spread of the gospel as it's now made its way from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and has begun to spread to the end of the earth. That, that his song is essentially, anything you can do, I can do better. You know, that, that, that's what he's doing in this moment. That's his strategy, is to, to spread the work of persecution as far as the spread of the gospel. And the story of Acts, we know, tells us of this rippling out of the gospel. And so, so now you see Saul's rippling out of persecution beginning to spread and spread. It's really fascinating. The, the same word used in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, translated ravaging. Saul was ravaging the church. That, that same word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 80, verse 13, to describe wild boars devastating a vineyard. Okay, this is the language of, of a wild, ferocious beast. That's how Saul is described, which is all the more fascinating when you look at that second and third account of his conversion story in the book of Acts, where we're told he's described as kicking against the goads. Goads were sharp sticks used to prod oxen to move in their stubbornness. That to use Paul's very own words in Romans 1, famous passage of scripture, He's by his unrighteousness ferociously suppressing the truth. He's kicking against the goat of Stephen's sermon back in chapter seven, Stephen's courageous willingness to die. He's kicking against the goat of the early church's declaration and display of the gospel, which has been right in his face. He can't get away from it. Maybe even kicking against the goat of his inability to keep the 10 commandment based on what you read in Romans chapter seven, where Paul tells us that when he came to the thou shalt not covet, uh, commandment, it completely wrecked him. And he realized how desperate for grace he actually was. 
that he's by his unrighteousness ferociously suppressing the truth, or to use Paul's language later on in the book of Acts, chapter 26, a raging fury is ferociously obsessing him. We're told as the story goes on, verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And and he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. A couple things to, to point out here in this very familiar passage to many of us. For one, might sound simple, but there's power in the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus declares his name to Saul, and Saul comes face to face with the truth of the resurrection in this moment. This Jesus, risen according to the the preaching of the apostles, is truly alive and worthy of worship. Secondly, and I find this incredibly encouraging, Jesus makes a number of profound statements in scripture One of the most incredible found here. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul hasn't been persecuting Jesus up to this point in the book of Acts, right? He's been persecuting the church, but that's not how Jesus sees it. Jesus is so united with his bride, the church. If you're a Christian, that's you, that to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus himself, That speaks of the the richness and depth of what it means to be united with Christ in union with him. One of the great doctrines that the Apostle Paul would go on to emphasize in his writing that Jesus is united to us in both blessing and suffering. That he takes any and all assaults on you if you're a Christian as personal. Not only that, we are identified with Christ as he is loved by the Father so You and I are loved by the Father, brought into this family of eternal siblings, which makes it all the more devastating to treat the church like a country club because it's just not biblically, right? The church is the family of God. We just came together in a visible expression of that surrounding these families and these these newborns that we want to point to Jesus, that we're not only united intimately with Christ the vine, we're brought into a litany of branch-to-branch relationships, you might say, that there's a knitting together of Christ and his church, and it's a beautiful thing. Saul persecutes the church, and in doing so, he persecutes Jesus himself. And he's brought low to the utter end of himself. Listen to this quote from Kent Hughes in his commentary on Acts 9. He says, the great hunter who was going to wreak havoc on the Damascus church, entered Damascus led by the hand, blind, weak, impotent. Saul was frightened and in despair. This was the midnight of his soul. His physical blindness paralleled his spiritual blindness. Though he was blind, he had seen Christ, and as he saw Christ, he also saw himself for the first time. His life was utterly wrong. He was a criminal before God. As Christ's enemy, he had drawn blood, and now darkness was everywhere, especially within his own soul. The hunter had been hunted down. There was no escape. In in describing his own conversion, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, uses similar language in his work, Surprised by Joy. If you've never read that, you should get your hands on it this week. 
He describes God's relentless pursuit of him using the metaphors of, quote, the great angler playing a fish, a cat chasing a mouse, a pack of hounds closing in on a fox, a chess player moving into the ultimate checkmate. Maybe you feel that. You come in this morning, you're like, I'm not a Christian, but man, it seems like God is hemming me in by his grace and mercy. That's what was happening for Saul in this moment, brought to the end of himself, true poverty of spirit, which by the way, is where the light of Jesus Christ burns brightest, does it not? It's where the beauty and supreme worth of Jesus is most visible. It's where the grace of God is most overwhelming. We're told moving forward in verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. It's not the same one that was struck down in chapter five, different one. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I, I've heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is cho chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And Ananias gets this understated role in the book of Acts, right? He gets the seemingly dangerous privilege of being the first Christian to engage what's known as the ferocious beast, Saul, in the wake of his Damascus Road experience. I don't know about you, I'd probably be a little skeptical too, right? Anybody, anybody ever said in life, are you sure about this, Lord? And we could all give a hearty hallelujah, amen, right? Just FYI, God's always sure about it. Like, we can't counsel the Lord out of a foolish decision because he doesn't make any. Though they may appear foolish to us, he always knows what he's doing. And so we're told in verse 17, Ananias departed and he entered the house and laying his hands on, on him, that is Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Can you imagine? Like, try your best to, to put yourself in Saul's shoes in this moment. Three days, you haven't seen a thing except utter darkness. Three days without food and drink. Some of us aren't even sure we can make it until noon, right? How long is this sermon gonna be? <laughs> complete darkness, complete emptiness at the absolute end of himself. Picture that, and now picture this. The first word he hears from Christian lips, brother Saul. A new family, a new identity. It's what God does by the power of his gospel. No longer an enemy of God, but a son no longer uh, the church being hated ones, but loved ones, eternal siblings. If you're a Christian, you'll one day meet this man and you'll call him brother and he'll call you brother or sister. It's unbelievable. Like, look around this room. Brother Bruce, sister Rachel. Like We could just go on and on and on. 
with the names. Let, let that familial language just overwhelm you for a second. You're, you're no longer a spiritual orphan if you're in Christ. You've been adopted in. You've been given a new identity and a new family. Like Saul, no longer blind, but now seeing, truly seeing. This is the, the same man who would go on to write in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the very passage of Scripture that, that I sat under the preaching of when I became a follower of Jesus myself, he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That, that's Saul's story. I couldn't see. He goes on to say, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, Paul says, who said, let light shine out of darkness. He's alluding to the creation story in the very beginning. That God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The, the apostle Paul didn't just write those words down. He experienced their truth. The same God in the creation story who said, let there be light. That God shined in Paul's heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God said, let there be light. And the scales fell away from Paul's eyes and he saw Jesus for who he really is. That's how any of us came to Christ, which is why it's not silly for us to sing, "'Twas blind, but now I see. Or praise the Lord, I saw the light. Like we should have those kind of hoedown songs, right? They're incredible, the truth that they proclaim. That Saul went from a religiously lost blind man groping in the darkness for something to hope in to a child of God with eyes to see and savor the glory of Jesus Christ. Unbelievable. That the gospel is not a message of self-sufficiency. If it was, this is, this is a man who would not need Jesus. We'll see that in a moment, his list of accolades. The gospel is not a message of self-sufficiency. It's a message of spiritual blindness apart from the radiant light of Jesus Christ. And so if you're not a Christian, that's my prayer for you. If you haven't experienced it sitting in your seat already, that, that God would declare in this very moment, let there be light. And like light in the creation story, the eyes of your heart would go, you got it. What else can I do in response to the mighty voice of God? Just like stars in the moon in the beginning of creation, I will now see and savor Jesus. I will now light up like the 4th of July. Listen to the other ways in which Paul describes his conversion elsewhere in Scripture. And notice, notice the overwhelming mercy and grace of God in his articulation. Passages like 1 Corinthians 15 verses 9 and 10 where he says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But, one of the most glorious words in all of the Bible, but by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain. Or how about Galatians 1, beginning in verse 11, where he says, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. There's Acts chapter 9. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Welcome to the American South. There are some zealous, empty, ritualistic 
church activities taking place all around us, just like Saul's life prior to his conversion. He goes on to say, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia, we'll get there in a second, and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that is Peter, and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, listen to this radical shift. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. If that doesn't tell you about the mightiness of God to save, I don't know what will. He says, and they glorified God because of me. Or how about Philippians chapter three, beginning in verse four, very famous passage. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, you come in this morning and you think you're good at checking all of the boxes of religiosity. Paul says, I got you beat. He says, circumcised on the eighth day, check. Of the people of Israel, check. Of the tribe of Benjamin, check. Hebrew of Hebrews, check. As to the law, Pharisee, check. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, check. As to righteousness under the law, blameless, check. It doesn't matter how many Sunday school classes you've participated in, maybe even how many Bible studies you've led. None of that holds up to scrutiny before a holy God. He goes on to say, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And let me stop here for a second and say, he's not talking about the loss of his house or his family members or the bottom line of his bank account because he became a Christian. He's talking about his righteous accolades. He goes on to say, for, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law. That's rubbish. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Lastly, Give you one more. 1 Timothy chapter 1, picking up in verse 12. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer. A blasphemer, says the man who kept the law better than any of us ever could. A blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy, Paul says, and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. What? Are you kidding? Like that would be the equivalent to, to the, the, the best box checking 
religious people in the American South declaring themselves to be the chief of sinners. Only the gospel can do that, can, can cause people who, who have done it better than anyone to declare things like that. I'm the foremost of sinners, he says, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, one of the things that encourages me, I think it's really easy to, uh, to write off um, religious people who are just involved in a litany of activities but don't truly know and love and follow Jesus. When I look at the Apostle Paul, I see him as an example of God's patience with the religious lost. Because that was Paul. And I pray that we would be a people who would, um, as followers of Jesus, if that's you, that would find ourselves more and more patient with, with those who seem to be very active and involved and yet have an absence of an abiding, intimate relationship with Jesus, that we'd be reminded of Paul's story and we'd move toward those people. That, that these are the words of a man saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone, as I say, every week, forever changed. It goes on to tell us in verse 19 of Acts 9, Coming back to this morning's passage, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. That's crazy. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name, Jesus? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. All of a sudden, he's not a good preacher, but an apologist overnight. He, he enters the, the same synagogues he had planned to enter, preaching the gospel to those he originally intended to grab by the hair and drag to Jerusalem. That whereas the high priest of Jerusalem had given Saul marching orders proclaiming incarceration, Jesus, the greater high priest, had given Paul a message of liberation to rescue the captives. He goes on to say, verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket, that the hunter is now the hunted. You see this turn of events, this turning of the tables, that in contrast to Stephen's death, going back to chapters seven and eight, which served to advance the gospel, it's actually through Paul's remaining alive that the gospel will be advanced, that to live as Christ, to die as gain, it doesn't matter either way, Jesus will be made much of, and Christians will know the sweetness of union with him. His church will not be stopped in its advancement. Verse 26 says, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him, you think? For they did not believe that he was a disciple himself. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. At this point, if this were a movie, this is where you'd see three years later, somewhere toward the bottom of the screen, that, that this attempt to join the, the disciples, according to Galatians 1, that passage we just looked at, takes place three years after Saul's conversion. And yet, even so, everyone's a skeptic. 
Like, can you imagine? Hey, guys, Saul's going to uh, swing by your community group this week, if that's cool. Uh, well, we, we were thinking about not meeting this week. We actually got a lot of sick kids, so what are you going to do? You know, like, that's, that's probably how that would go down if it, was, if it was us, right? Everyone's a skeptic except for sweet-spirited Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, so he kind of has to live up to that, right? You can just picture everyone in Barnabas's community group going, dude, we got to change groups. This is not cool. Like, this is going to be a, a really gruesome week for us. The, the son of encouragement lives up to his name as he bridges Saul into the Jerusalem church family. By the way, the church needs those people because there are people who come to faith that some of us are going to be a little more skeptical of than others. May God um, give us grace to move toward those people and not look at them with an eye of skepticism, but believe that God's big enough to rescue anyone. This morning's passage closes out, verse 28 so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, that is Saul, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. That is the church. That amazingly, you see Saul here taking up the very baton that Stephen had passed off unbeknownst to Saul. Like Saul standing on the scene, approving of Stephen's martyrdom, he's now preaching to the very same Hellenist crowd, likely in the very same synagogue that Stephen preached in. Now in danger of the same exact fate as Stephen himself. That the very people who Saul had partnered with in the ravaging of the church are now out to kill him. Some of the very same people who had been on the scene with Saul for Stephen's martyrdom, probably holding coats right alongside of him. Crazy. Now out to make this man their next victim. He, he's sent out by this newly established church family by boat to his hometown of Tarsus where he'll spend the next eight years ministering in that area. We'll pick back up his story later in the book of Acts. At the time of his departure, though, we're told that the church had peace and was being built up from persecution, skepticism, threats of death, to peace and growth. As Derek Thomas says in his commentary, Jesus providentially turns the history of the world in which the church is found to his own advantage whenever it pleases him. Because he's king. That's what he does. It's the story of Acts. Nothing can stop the advancement of the gospel. Nothing can stop the building of Jesus' church. In this case, you have a mission of persecution ending with the conversion of the persecutor. Now, now you might ask the question, we find from time to time ourselves in these passages that have to do with martyrdom and, and great persecution. Like, what's the takeaway for me in a story like this? Particularly if you wouldn't describe um, yourself as having had a Damascus Road experience, right? Some of us in this room would go, that's my story. I was strung out on coke in the back of a pickup truck, woke up, saw the blinding light of the glorious Jesus Christ, never been the same since. A lot of us, that's not our story, right? Like you, you might not describe your conversion experience as a Damascus Road experience. And so, so what? Like, what do you do with a story like this? And, and I think this is one of the harder ones, honestly. I remember a professor of mine, my first semester at seminary, this was a, a Bible interpretation class. He said, um, there are gonna be passages that one of the only application points that you're gonna be able to draw from it is marvel. Like, marvel. Just stand amazed at the character and grace of God. 
There's not a lot of to-dos coming out of you know, a passage like this or that one. And so just stop. Don't try to do or avoid the don't, but walk out of here just simply marveling. And that is one of the, the applications of this morning's passage, that regardless of how miraculous you perceive your conversion story to be, you, everyone in here, if you're a Christian, you are a walking miracle. Do you realize that? Do you believe that? That Jesus' brightness shine on the retina of your human soul. Think about that, that kind of uh, visual imagery that you went from a blind orphan groping in the darkness for something to hope in to a child of God with eyes to see and savor the glory of Jesus Christ. Saved by grace, you've been given a home, you've been given a name. We, we oftentimes get so fidgety when there's not you know, some sort of practically implementable application. Sometimes the application point is simply marvel. I love how John Stott says it in his commentary. He says, one can but magnify the grace of God that he should have had mercy on such a rabid bicked as Saul of Tarsus, and indeed on such proud, rebellious, and wayward creatures as ourselves. Marvel at the overwhelming, lavish, sovereign grace of God that we were once dead in our trespasses, but we've been made alive. We've gone from children of wrath to children of God, from fatherless to the God of the universe, the Father of Fathers, capital F, Father, calling you his beloved son or daughter. You're a walking miracle if you're a Christian. Acts chapter nine invites us to marvel at the glory and grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so I pray that we walk out of here a marveling people, number one. But secondly, I pray that we leave here as a hoping people, that we would have hope for everyone, that God can rescue the most hard-hearted sinners and even make them ambassadors and church planters. That's amazing, right? Another quote from John Stott, he says, there are many souls of Tarsus in the world today, and believe me, there are a lot of them in the American South. He says, like him, they are richly endowed with natural gifts of intellect and character, men and women of personality, energy, initiative, and drive, having the courage of their non-Christian convictions, utterly sincere, but sincerely mistaken, traveling, as it were, from Jerusalem to Damascus instead of from Damascus to Jerusalem, hard, stubborn, even fanatical in their rejection of Jesus Christ. But, there's that word again, but they are not beyond his sovereign grace. We need more faith, more holy expectation, which will lead us to pray for them. As we may be sure the early Christians prayed for Saul. We know Stephen did. He prayed for his enemies as he was dying. That Christ will first prick them with his goads and then decisively lay hold of them. Well, let me ask you, just in light of that, that quote and in light of this morning's passage, is there anyone, let's be honest, is there anyone that, that you've given up on is there anyone that if you could just have an honest moment and vocalize it, that you perceive as being beyond the reach of God's grace? Because according to Acts chapter 9, our God is able to turn ferocious wolves not only into sheep, but shepherds. There, there's this thing that happens oftentimes when I get in a car now. It started about five, six years ago as I was moving toward the back end of a church planting residency program. Uh, every time I see a a commercial property with a for sale sign, 
Uh, This thing happens in my brain where all of a sudden I start envisioning God's people gathering in that place and worshiping and trying to sort out like, is is it possible? I know we could do it in kind of a ragtag sort of way, but is there a way to actually like put some tracks on the ground and and see this thing, you know, happen in, in in, in a sensible, you know, wise sort of way? Every time I see a for sale sign, can't, can't get away from envisioning, at least for a moment. Sometimes those moments are longer than others, and those are the ones that we go actually make a pass as a staff and look at the property um, as we kind of keep all options open moving forward as a church. My prayer for everyone in this room and everyone who's not in this room who listens into this podcast that'll get posted this week is that God would give you that kind of vision every time you look in the face of a non-Christian family member, friend, neighbor, or coworker. That you would have this vision of their life being leveraged for the kingdom of God. This vision of, of, of them being given eyes to see and savor the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That when you, when you look at your non-Christian family members, friends, neighbors, and coworkers, particularly those that that seem to be beyond the reach of God's grace, at least from your perspective, that you'd see future evangelists, that you'd see future community group leaders, that you'd see future pastors and church planters. I mean, do you think anyone saw that in the Apostle Paul leading up to chapter nine? This guy's gonna write most of the books of the New Testament and is going to spread the gospel all throughout the Mediterranean landscape. No chance. Maybe a handful we're looking with that kind of outward, you know, uh, forward trajectory for Saul's life. My prayer is that, that God would give us that kind of vision that we would believe and that we would hope and that we would expect and we would find ourselves on our knees praying for those people and moving toward them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because after all, to use Paul's very own language in Ephesians 3, the one who rescued him is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. And that includes reaching people by His grace.